Hi, I'm Lauren Cirillo, and I've been attending Crosspoint for around like four or five years. I'm currently studying Spanish um, to be a high school Spanish teacher, and today's scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians verses 17 through 34, and then verses 27 through 34, I'll be reading in Spanish. Let's hear God's word. Now in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. Indeed, it is necessary that there be factions among you, so that those who are approved may be recognized among you. When you come together, then, it is not to eat the, the Lord's Supper. For at the meal, each one eats his own supper, so one person is hungry while another gets drunk. Don't you have homes in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Or what should I say to you? Should I praise you? I do not praise you in this matter. For I, have received, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Por tanto, cualquiera que coma el pan o beba la copa del Señor indignamente será culpable de cuerpo y de la sangre del Señor. Que cada uno se examine a sí mismo, y entonces y así coma el pan y beba de la copa. Porque cualquiera que come y bebe sin descender a cuerpo, come y bebe juicio sobre sí mismo. Por eso muchos de vosotros estáis débiles y enfermos, y algunos habéis muerto. Pero si nos juzgáramos verdaderamente a nosotros mismos, no seríamos juzgados. Pero cuando somos juzgados por el Señor, somos disciplinados para que no seamos comendados con el mundo. Así que, hermanos míos, cuando nos reunimos para comer, esperar el uno al otro. Si alguno tiene hambre, que coma en su casa para que cuando te encuentres no sea para juicio. Sobre las otras cosas daré instrucciones cuando venga. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Lauren. If you have a Bible, uh, open it up to that passage. Uh, we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, looking at verses 17 through 34. In Genesis 12, the Lord makes this promise to Abraham. Verses 2 and 3, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you. With contempt, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All the peoples on earth will be blessed through the Messiah, Jesus, who will come through the family line of Abraham. God's heart for every tribe, tongue, and nation is evident and clear in the storyline of the scriptures early on. Then you go to the last book in the Bible, Revelation, as the story of God is culminating in the restoration of all things new, a new heavens and a new earth, and the people of God throughout all history have come together to worship Jesus the Savior who was promised in Genesis, the Eternal One, who then came in the flesh, lived a life of perfect love and obedience, died on a cross for the sins of the world, rose again on the third day, the perfect Lamb of God who sacrificed His life. The once but now found people then in Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10, John writes this, After this, I looked and there was a vast mul multitude from every nation, tribe, people and language, which no one could number. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, they were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. 
when they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. Salvation belongs to our God by grace alone, through faith alone. The gift of salvation then is given to all believers. We as the church of Jesus Christ live in between these two moments of, Reve- of, of Genesis 12 and Revelation 7. The New Testament church is to reflect God's heart for the nations, for every tribe, people, and language. And so supernaturally, since the book of Acts, the church has been an eclectic group. According to Ephesians 2, the church is no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens brought together by Jesus, the Lamb of God, founded in Him, put together in Him, growing in Him, built together in Him for His purposes, His glory, both in this life and into eternity. The world and its people, since Genesis 3, have been prone to division, disunity, and sectioning themselves off into classes and races, which shouldn't surprise us, because the spiritual enemy's mission is to steal, kill, and destroy. And yet in the church, we see the worldly patterns of division turned on their head. Instead, we see a diverse group of people from all backgrounds, languages, social classes, races, joined around their shared worship of Jesus, the Lamb of God. Frankly, in a worldly sense, this local gathering of believers, Cross Point Community Church, in a worldly sense, makes zero sense. It makes no sense to the watching world that such an eclectic group of people are joined together in one place. Men and women from all sorts of church backgrounds or lack thereof, from a variety of social classes, from blue-collar, white-collar, multiple generations, marital statuses, tax brackets, political convictions, let alone personalities, experiences, passions, and spiritual gifts. It makes no sense to the watching world. And yet, for those of us who are in the body of Christ, it makes perfect sense that we, His people, fit and how we fit into this grand narrative of a mission to the nations and how our unity with one another is not rooted in anything of this earth, not rooted in anything outward, but rather our inward, shared worship of Jesus Christ. And as we live on mission between Genesis 12 and Revelation, we are called to reflect and reveal Jesus, to make disciples of Jesus to to the nations. And one way we do that, according to the words of Jesus in John 13, is by loving one another. Just as Jesus has first loved us, so we are to love one another. The watching world should be confused. They should be perplexed, intrigued by how the local church loves one another and maintains the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. May that be said of us here at Crosspoint in the next 20, 40, 60 years. In the church of God at Corinth, it was a different story. In chapters 11 through 14, Paul's addressing multiple examples of where the church is making their worship not centered around the Lamb of God, but rather themselves. Today's example is that of communion. And even in the Lord's Supper, their actions toward one another in the family of God are marked by a disregard for others rather than unity and love for one another. And the, and the division, the partiality in this case, is that of socioeconomic class, wealthy versus poor. Paul's written 
of communion earlier in chapter 10 in this letter. He said this in verses 16 and 17, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body since all of us share that one bread. Paul's saying, among other things, that communion is designed to not only remind us of the gospel and the sacrifice of Christ, it's to be a reflection of the love and unity among the members of the one body, illustrated through the one bread, which is a visible picture of of the one true Lamb of God who we are founded in. In communion, the gospel becomes visible. It was to be a strengthening moment. But in the Corinthians' case, it was magnifying their divisions because they themselves were at the center and not Jesus. When they were coming together, it wasn't for the better, but for the worse. It was dishonoring Christ, let alone one another. Verse 17 of chapter 11, Now in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. In chapter 2 of, or I'm sorry, in chapter 11, verse 2, what we looked at last week, he has praise for the church. Here, he has no pra- nothing praiseworthy about the, about the church, no encouragement for them. Verses 18 and 19, for to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. Indeed, it is necessary that there be factions among you so that those who are proved may be recognized among you. Paul uses two words that to us appear the same. But in the original language, they have different meanings. The two words being divisions and factions. Divisions refer to interpersonal sin and self-oriented conflict. It's what Paul is addressing earlier in the letter when he says that people are dividing over which earthly leader they are going to confess their allegiance to. It's here what, it, what, it's what he's addressing here in communion. Factions, though, has a different meaning in the original language. Factions are necessary, according to verse 19. They are necessary because they, they reveal the difference between true and false. Throughout the history of the church, there have been good factions. For instance, the Protestant Reformation, a break from the false teaching that we could somehow earn our salvation or Worse yet, by our salvation. That's a good faction. That's a good break from false teaching. Right now in the big C church, there are factions over the Bible's teaching on sexuality. And so factions historically are necessary and good because they they reveal what is true and what is false. Divisions, on the other hand, need to be repented of. Divisions need to be turned away from, which is what Paul is calling the, the church to do saying you're, come together, you're coming together, but in essence, you're not. You might even be in the same room, but you're not together. You're still divided like the world rather than united in Christ. Verses 20 through, or 20 through 22. When you come together then, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For at the meal, each one eats his own supper. No one person is hungry while another gets drunk. Don't you have homes in which to eat and drink? Or, you do, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I do not praise you in this matter. I love the directness of Paul. There's nothing praiseworthy about how you gather. When you come together, it isn't about the Lord and remembrance of His body and blood. It's about you, Corinthians. In that day, communion and the Lord's Supper was a part of a larger meal. A love feast is what some called it, a shared dish supper 
or as Pastor Dave says, a pot providence that doesn't pass the Scrabble test, but I think we could possibly let it slide. So in that context, and you see this in Acts 2 as well, that, that the early church combined the Lord's Supper with a larger meal. It wasn't just part of a church gathering. There was far more food to eat than unleavened bread and some wine. Around the table in the homes of believers was to be a picture of unified fellowship. And yet in Corinth, the meal had become about how to expose and reveal social class and status. And so, for instance, you had the wealthy gorging themselves on both food and alcohol at this feast, while others, the poor, were left out. They were despised, they were marginalized. In the midst of a gathering that was intended to glorify God, instead, it had become all around, all around the haves and the have-nots. The wealthy members provided most of the food for the meal. They were often first to the meal because they had flexibility in their work schedule. The poor, on the other hand, couldn't arrive until after finishing their work. And when they had arrived, the wealthy had already plowed through all the food and wine, left nothing for their fellow brothers and sisters. And in some homes, the division would have also been revealed in the physical space. There would have been limited numbers who could fit in one room. And so when the poor arrived, it wasn't like the wealthy had reserved seats of honor waiting for them. It was rather, you're down the hall, the kids' room, the poor room, you're down there. You're humiliated. Rather than honoring one another, as Romans 12 calls the body of Christ to do. The poor who were already lacking continued to be in need. And the wealthy who were already living in abundance only, bl only, only bl bloated themselves more. So there was no sharing, no commonality, no one anothering, no deferring to the other. The separation between the classes was stark, which is a pattern of the world that is centered around the worship of sin and self. It's not to be a pattern of the church of Jesus Christ that's centered around our Savior, Jesus. One author wrote this regarding how the Corinthians are approaching communion. They've twisted the sacrament from being about Christ's accomplishments to being a sacrament of their own accomplishments. So it no longer reflects their need, it reflects their prominence, their importance. The Lord's Supper was designed to demonstrate something radically different than the world. It's to give a visible picture of an eternal family, a new community whose cornerstone is Christ. Communion is not just a meal that recognizes vertical realities of who we are in Christ and what He's done for us. It's also, it's also to reveal horizontal realities. The broken body, the shed blood of Jesus brings us from a position of foreigners who are opposed to one another and rather to a position of being fellow citizens who are united and with and for one another. Verses 23 through 26, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me in the same way also he took the cup after su after supper and said this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the lord's death until he comes so paul's teaching on communion doesn't reside in himself it's been passed down 
from Jesus who established this meal. And in the Lord's Supper, Supper, Paul calls us to remember and to proclaim. First, we remember. Not as if Jesus is gone and we haven't seen him in a while, as if he's a friend that we haven't seen. But rather, we remember knowing Jesus is not gone, he's not dead, he's not buried in a tomb. But he's been raised to life, he's active and present in our daily lives through the Holy Spirit. We remember his selfless sacrifice. We remember his willingness to endure the scorn and shame on the cross so that we might not be condemned. We remember that by his wounds we have been healed. We remember that it was the weight of our sin that he bore upon that cross, the penalty paid in full. The action of remembrance calls our hearts and minds to look backward toward the past, the past sufficient work of Jesus and our own past and the goodness and the faithfulness and the grace and truth of the Lord Jesus in our past that he has shown us the blood of Christ that covers all our sin. Paul then also says in verse 26, we are to proclaim in communion. So we remember and we proclaim. If remembrance turns our eyes to the past, when we proclaim, it turns our attention to the present and to the future. To proclaim means we preach to our own hearts. We preach as well to one another in the body of Christ as well as to an unbelieving world. And what are we preaching? What are we proclaiming when we hold the symbols of His body and blood? We are proclaiming the new covenant of grace that Jesus has established through his birth, life, death, and resurrection. In the book of Jeremiah in the Old Testament, it points our eyes forward to the new covenant of God that he will establish with his people through the blood of his Son. In Luke 22, when Jesus is leading his disciples through the supper for the first time, it's at the time of Passover, during Holy Week, and he's giving the the Israelite Old Testament Passover meal a new meaning. Because the Old Testament meal of Passover was centered around the life of a lamb being given. A lamb whose sacrificial blood would cover and protect from death all those households who had painted the blood of the lamb upon their doorposts. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says that Christ is now our Passover lamb. He is the one who was sacrificed so that we could be saved from eternal death and be given new and eternal life in Him instead. And in the death and resurrection of Jesus, a new covenant is established. Hebrews 10 tells us that it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So we are not in need of yet another temporary sacrifice of an animal or a sacrifice of a religious work. We are in desperate need of an all-sufficient sacrifice that has the power to cover cover all our past present and future sin and the lord jesus has done it his body and blood for you dealing with sin once and for all the spotless and sufficient lamb of god jesus came to fulfill the old testament law and establish a new covenant so that through faith alone in him not by works people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation, and people group, and social class could be saved and brought into the family of God. In communion, we remember and we proclaim. And in verse 26, we see Paul also calls us to look forward and be ready for the second coming of Jesus. 
where one day all believers will enjoy the marriage feast of the Lamb unified around the table where the people of God throughout all history will gather in His kingdom, people who've been purchased by His blood, we will together with one loud voice declare, according to Revelation 5, worthy is the Lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the one who gave of His body and His blood for us. And so anytime we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we, we are to remember and we are to proclaim. It's a visible and tangible reminder of the unity we have in Christ. And yet the Corinthians are so far from this picture. Corinthians, all you're doing is remembering and proclaiming yourselves and your accomplishments when it's ultimately about the Lamb of God. And so the path forward, Corinthians, is one of humble repentance. To turn your eyes and your hearts toward the one who is to receive all honor, glory, and blessing. Verses 27 and 28. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself in this way. Let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. So then, so then, so out of an understanding of the new covenant established through his broken body and shed blood, Paul calls us to eat the bread and drink the cup in a worthy manner. Paul's talking about the manner in which we remember and proclaim, not whether or not we ourselves are worthy to take communion. I think I misunderstood that early in my faith. So I would walk through communion and I would think, okay, in this, in this 30 seconds or minute or two minutes, I need to make myself worthy. I need to kind of bargain with God and kind of make myself worthy, whatever that meant. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Jesus alone has done the work. He's done the work through faith and by grace of washing our hearts white as snow, of covering our lives in robes of righteousness, taking on our unrighteousness upon the cross, one author wrote this, if one is afflicted by sin, the supper is a comfort. If an individual is comfortable with sin, the supper is an affliction. So when our sin, that is still present this side of heaven, when it gets exposed, let us not harden our hearts toward it or be callous to it or justify it or excuse it but let us run to the Lord, for in Him is where we find our worth. In Him, we are met with mercy and help in our time of need. In Him, we are met with forgiveness and cleansing. In Him, we find healing through His wounds. The new covenant of grace welcomes and commands us to walk in the light before the Lord and with one another because we are not here gathered in this place because, the, because of the spiritual resumes we built we're here alongside one another before the throne of grace of our Savior all because of His grace. Transformative, amazing, unending grace. Paul writes that those who eat the bread and drink the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. One commentary said, that, said this, that is to say, their offense violates the central sacred purpose of the Lord's Supper, which is honoring Christ for His work of salvation. 
To sin against the body and blood is to sin against the very hope of salvation, Jesus the Lamb. To sin against the body and blood is also to sin against the church, in the Corinthians' case, toward the poor brothers and sisters around them, the ones they excluded. Sinning against those for whom Christ shed his blood and gave his body is to sin against Christ himself. So what does Paul call us to do to avoid an unworthy manner? Well, verse 28, he says to examine ourselves, to use the words of Psalm 139, asking the Lord to search our hearts. And remember, the Lord is not searching in order to condemn. He's searching in order to forgive and wash and cleanse and heal and prune and cut away to transform. That's what he's searching for. That's what we're asking him to do. Asking him to search us so that we might find our joy more and more in him and not in the things of this world. He's searching for our good and for our joy and for the good and joy of those around us. Taking into account the context of this letter and this call to examine ourselves, maybe some questions to consider anytime we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Am I loving my brothers and sisters in Christ like Jesus who is selfless or like the world that is self-centered? Am I contributing toward the division or disunity in the body? Am I showing partiality toward others? Favoritism because of how they can or can't serve me? Am I harboring bitterness, anger, or unforgiveness toward an eternal family member? And as sin is revealed, may we be quick to confess and repent. Max Lucado writes this regarding confession. Confession is a radical reliance on grace, a proclamation of our trust in God's goodness. What I did was bad, we acknowledge, but your grace, Lord, is greater than my sin, so I confess it. If our understanding of grace is small, he writes, our confession will be small. It will be reluctant, hesitant, hedged with excuses and qualifications, full of fear of punishment. But great grace creates an honest confession, a confession that walks in the light, a confession that doesn't believe the lie that we're here on our resumes, but simply on the perfect resume of Jesus Christ. A confession that understands we are under the new covenant of grace and not the old covenant of works. Verses 29 through 32, Paul gives both a warning and a promise to the Corinthian church. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. If we were properly judging ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned with the world. When our children were growing up, we disciplined them. Not because we hated them, but because we loved them. If we saw in them sin and did nothing about it, if we saw this heart attitude that we would be there to their demise and said, ah, kids will be kids. Ah, they'll grow out of it. And we didn't engage with them. Speak the truth and love to them. Discipline, correct. If we knew of sin in their life and didn't take those actions, it, re it would reveal that we didn't actually love them. It would reveal that actually we are indifferent to them and to their future. If we ignored it, it would reveal that we're more concerned with being liked by them which is a fear of man issue, 
than we are in loving them like Christ. Our Heavenly Father loves His children. His secure in His hand, adopted sons and daughters. And Paul is saying the Father will discipline His children when He sees in them a heart attitude or actions that are not for their good. The discipline is not to condemn. Into verse 32, it's to correct and lead toward salvation, toward fruit, toward abundant life. Paul is reminding the church of the sickness and suffering, the loss they have experienced. One author wrote, it should not be assumed that the sick or dying were particularly guilty of the sin of partiality and division. But like most plagues of divine judgment in the Old Testament, the plague would fall broadly on the community as a whole. And so Corinthian church, in the midst of a fallen world, with all its sickness and suffering, don't be spiritually numb or callous toward the work the Father is wanting to do in and through you. Suffering in ourselves or in those around us has a way of waking us from our self-centeredness and indifference, does it not? And, and the Corinthians are numb to this. Corinthians, even in sickness and suffering, you're still living self-centered of anything in this fallen world. It's in the times where we suffer with one another, when we grieve with one another, that the church of God should move toward one another. And the Corinthians are just continuing to move further and further away from one another, even in those situations. And the promise that Paul gives to the church in verse 31 is, is that if we walk in a humble posture toward the Lord and toward our brothers and sisters, in the identity of being in Christ and covered by His blood, we will be not met with condemnation like the world, but will be met with grace and mercy and help in our time of need, and Corinthians, the path toward, the path forward, if you will, is not down the broad road of selfish arrogance. Instead, it's the other way around. It's repenting, turning around, walking on the narrow road of humility, dependence, humility that we see most clearly and visibly in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ upon the cross. Verses 33 and 34. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, welcome one another. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home so that when you gather together, you will not come under judgment. I will give instruction about the other matters whenever I come. Come together for the better by welcoming one another, by considering the needs of others, by humbly examining, by remembering and proclaiming the good news of God's grace in our hearts and toward the hearts and lives of those around us in the gathering. We're going to stand and sing a song in worship reminding us of that the blood of Jesus covers all our past, present, and future sin, and then afterwards we'll move into communion before returning to singing again. Brothers and sisters, anytime we have an opportunity, whether it be in homes or in this place, may we come together for the better, for the glory of the one who has brought us together and removed, removed earthly distinctions removed earthly barriers. Apart from the gospel, we are fractured. We are divided. We are alienated and orphaned. In Christ, though, we are brought together. We are united, no longer alone, but adopted. The new covenant in Christ creates a new people. A new people, my fellow brothers and sisters, 
a new people from every tribe, language, and nation, a new people who are brought together because of their shared and united worship and allegiance to Jesus. For He alone is worthy, worthy, worthy. And one day we will gather with the family of God throughout all of history, throughout every culture, around the globe, in the new heavens and new earth, declaring that Jesus has paid it all. And collectively, we owe everything to Him, enjoying His goodness and grace for all eternity. We're going to continue in worship as we remember and proclaim Jesus through communion together, part of one body. May we enjoy the good gift of the Lord's Supper alongside one another together. May we examine and may we confess and may we repent and be reminded of His lavish and sufficient grace. If you're a believer in and follower of Jesus Christ, you're welcome and invited and encouraged to take communion alongside your fellow brothers and sisters. Our First Impressions team will begin passing out the trays now. This is an opportunity for us to pray and to respond as the Spirit leads us, and we will take the elements together as one unified body of Christ afterwards. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat the bread. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink the juice. During these next two worship songs, we'll be giving our offering as well. So if you're a guest with us, don't feel obligated at all to give. This is a chance for us to call, call this church home to invest into the Lord's work that he's doing in and through this local faith family. Lord Jesus, thank you for your body and blood laid down for us. We are forever grateful. Create in us a spirit and a heart that is tender, tender toward your grace and truth, tender toward your hands that are shaping us more and more into your image, tender toward the Spirit's leading. May this local body reflect you and how we love one another. Thank you for first loving us so selflessly, so completely, so sufficiently. May spiritual renewal, awakening, revival take place in our church, in our community, in our state, and in our nation. May it start with our humble, repentant, watchful, expectant posture. A heart that trusts and believes you're more than able to do more than we can ask for or imagine. And it wouldn't be about us at all. It would be about your glory. Your glory in all generations and in your church. We love and trust you, Jesus. Be glorified through our unity as your people. We pray this in your name. Amen. Ephesians 2. But now in Christ, in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh. And skipping down, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, 
The whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. Amen.